This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. to burn it all down the feminist sports podcast you need we are so happy you're here first things first this week this is episode 26 which means we have been making burn it all down for a full half year thank you to everyone who has been listening whether this is your first episode with us or your 26th this is also a moment of transition for us this week we are saying goodbye to our co-host julie DeCaro, who helped found create and shape burn it all down She's moved on and is working on other projects. We at Burn It All Down are forever thankful to her, and we wish her all the best. We are pleased to announce today that we are introducing Dr. Amira Rose Davis as a new co-host here at Burn It All Down. For avid Burn It All Down listeners, you will recognize Amira's name and voice from the three times she has been a guest on the podcast. You will also understand why we are thrilled to have her with us now as a co-host. Amira is an assistant professor of history and women's gender and sexuality studies at Penn State University. Her research centers on race, gender, sports, and politics in 20th century United States. She's currently working on a book with the best title, Can't Eat a Medal, The Lives and Labors of Black Women Athletes in the Age of Jim Crow. Welcome, Amira. Joining Amira on today's panel is Lindsay Gibbs in Washington, D.C., Brenda Elsie in New York, Shereen Ahmed in Toronto, and me, I'm Jessica Luther in Austin, Texas. On this week's show, we're going to talk about whether football, the kind we worship here in the United States, is not just a metaphorical garbage fire, but if the sport itself is possibly headed into the garbage can of history. We'll then turn our attention to diversity in NASCAR stock car racing. And Shireen interviews Alison Gallagher, a trans woman, writer, and poet based in Australia, about the Australian Football League's decision to ban a trans woman, Hannah Mouncey, from the league. Of course, we'll cap it all off by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shout-outs to women who deserve shout-outs, and telling you what's good in our worlds. Let's get into it. All right, Brenda, talk to us about football and where it's headed. So I guess the title of this segment was football in decline, question mark, (laughs) in terms of I'm going to start with the university because that's where I work and that's what I find most egregious. There have been a series of recent articles in publications that are geared toward academics, including Chronicle of Higher Education, Inside Higher Ed, and so on, from professors expressing their dismay at the contradictions of college football. Those of you who listen to the show know that this is a pretty evergreen theme here. And it seems it's finally caught fire. A lot of people who aren't involved in studying sports or sports scholarship or on athletics committees or in kinesiology departments are sort of like, hey, wait, what's going on? 
And a lot of it has been sparked by the protest of, of Colin Kaepernick and others. But I think a lot of it is also sparked by a general acknowledgement that college football has been a financial drain on most universities. So a lot of these articles have pointed out the contradiction between educating students and not aiding and abetting activities that cause CTE and, and make it more difficult for them to learn. But the solutions proposed by these professors include things like not signing student forms, giving them permission to miss class. Ooh. So I'm heartened that this is happening, but it seems pretty obvious to me that we need to go forward without burdening the students who are already burdened by the very system. They're already being exploited. And one way are things are, are initiatives like the Drexel Care Conference that you can look up on Twitter or anywhere that you want. Groups of academic administrators and scholars who are trying to find structural changes like, you know, opening debates about limiting demands on student athlete time, discussing best practices for coaching salary and addressing the rape culture in college sports. I mean, once again, I'm going to just say I don't understand what tenure is for if not addressing these kinds of problems. And the lawsuits, I have to say, are coming, my friends. Last year, University of California, Berkeley settled a wrongful death lawsuit filed by the family of former football player Ted Agu for $4.75 million. That may not seem like that much. Agu had been a pre-med student and died at 21 after a strenuous off-season conditioning workout. So while it doesn't seem that much as one-off, think about it. The public taxpayers are now both footing the bill for coaches' salaries and the injury to players inflicted by said coaches. I mean, and why should we stop at thinking about the damage to students at universities when the brains of elementary, junior high, and high school students are just as valuable and more tender, perhaps? Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, there's evidence that youth participation is down. There's been back-to-back -back decreases in total football players mm -hmm. at the high school level. And despite a lot of reports that this is the Kaepernick effect, there's a very good article that we'll link in the show notes in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson, where he compares numbers and didn't find that to be a compelling argument whatsoever. So even though viewership is down and, and actually participation is down and things like that, basically, it seems that viewership everywhere is down for everything. So it's it's not just you know a matter of those those types of issues about it being politicized or or not politicized or things like that. There's also the point that NASCAR and basketball have struggled, you know, due to cable subscriptions and things like that. So at the end of this Atlantic article, I'll just wrap it up. He says football is the most buoyant cargo aboard a sinking ship. And I guess I feel like I'm sorry, I love you all, but if the NFL declines, I say hallelujah. Maybe it's the anarchist in me, but for those who love the game, there's simply got to be a way out of the cesspool to organize this. Yes. Thank you, Brenda. Amira, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I do. I think that at the college level, it's so important to understand how large these institutions is. And I think this is a perfect example because I work here at Penn State where you see pushback in different quarters from professors who will hang sides that said proud to support Penn State academics or proud to support Penn State research. 
as a way to also center academics at the collegiate level, almost as a rebuke from college football. But I also am here as Penn State just set a record number for attendance last week at their whiteout game and sees how ingrained college football culture is at many of these institutions. And I think that helps to illustrate that sometimes rating metrics and decline that we see on some levels don't speak to how ingrained football culture is and the uphill battle we really have in terms of thinking about decline or disinvestment in in large salaries and the centering of college football on college campuses as the reason why an institution exists. Yeah, that's a great point. And Lindsay, do you want to talk to us a little bit more about, I mean, we can go both directions here. We can talk about youth football or the NFL, you know, moving from college. But and Brenda, and Brenda talked about this. She, she mentioned youth football. Like, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that when it gets lost a lot, that what damage is being done to the youth who are playing football. I'm talking kids, kids. Last year, there was a really great episode of HBO's Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, which is pretty much always a must-watch show. It said that in the past three years, and I wrote an article on this episode pretty much exactly one year ago, so this is this number has increased, but it said in the past three years, 47 kids have died playing football, 17 of those deaths directly related to head injuries sustained in practice or during the game. Dr. Ann McKee, who is the director of the CTE Center at Boston University, and CTE stands for Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy, So she talked to HBO about this in her quote, which has pretty much just been sending chills down my spine for the past year was, quote, I've looked at brains of young teenagers and seen damage that I've never seen before. And it came from football impact injuries, took my breath away. I can't believe it. Chris Nisky, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, He has said that each additional year playing football increases the chance that a person will develop CTE, which is the generative brain disease that is caused by repeated blows to the head that leads to dementia, depression, and even death. He said, you know, to say it simply, it's a bad idea to hit a child in the head 500 times. So look, this is a problem on the youth level, and it's a problem that we can't really, we don't really even have the studies and the knowledge to even be able to comprehend what a problem this is. Are participation numbers down in youth football? Did we say that already? Yes, they are. Yeah. As Brenda mentioned, they are down. But, you know, like also like Amira said, you know, you can find different statistics for anything, you know, to, to prove different points. I mean, while it's on the decline, I think all of football is popularity is decreasing a little bit from, you know, I feel like it inflated to a unsustainable degree, the popular football. So now that it's decreasing a little bit, both in, we're talking NFL ratings, we're talking colleges providing the sport and we're talking youth football. But I think that we shouldn't look at that decrease as like necessarily a trend. In my mind, it's more a little bit of coming back to reality. I think that these numbers are going to plateau and that, you know, you're going to keep seeing this being very popular. I mean, when football ratings decrease, it doesn't mean that football still isn't the top, the top sport here because the ratings were so far ahead, you know? So I like to keep that in, you know, you have to keep it in perspective. Brenda? I think that's such a good point. A lot of these things are cyclical. And so it's hard to make too much of what it is. 
But when I was looking at youth participation numbers, something that interested me about this round of that cycle, because there's been previous years like 2004 and five, where you saw a little downturn as well in youth participation. And it actually corresponded with a very similar downturn in viewership. When I was looking at it, what was interesting to me about this cycle is the market, like the areas where the playing, the youth participation was down. And where it's down the hardest is both coasts. So California, Connecticut, you know, New Jersey. And it's really interesting. There seems to be a kind of, like you could almost draw a political map around it. The areas, the kind of red blue thing going on there. So it'll be just really fascinating to see what happens because that indicates to me some deeper kind of shift than the usual just cyclical Kind of, you know, and I I totally agree with Lindsay. I mean, the numbers were so huge, but it did indicate to me something more interesting. But we'll see. And then before we get off this topic, we have to go up to the professional level. And I think, you know, Friday was quite a day. Last week, there was a really big article from ESPN magazine. I think it was Don Vada Jr. and Seth Wickersham, right? That published a piece about... Don Vanetta, yeah. Vanetta, thank you. That published a piece about the meeting that the NFL owners had with players around the anthem protests. And it was pretty terrible (laughs) what the owners said and did in that meeting that just indicated their own relationship to their players, which we all like knew, but there was something about reading about it and hearing what they actually say out loud. Lindsay, do you want to talk just a little bit about what's going on with the NFL and why maybe... I mean, I don't even know what to say about it. You go, you go. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I'll give our usual disclaimer, which is that we're recording this on Sunday morning before the day of NFL games. I am expecting there to be more demonstrations and more news to come out of this day of Sunday NFL football, but we don't know, of course. But look, the big takeaway from this great piece by NESPN was Bob McNair, who is the owner of the Houston Texans. And his quote, which he said in the owner's Owners only. Well, it was owners and executives, um, but this wasn't a meeting that the. Oh, okay. This wasn't a meeting that the players were in. This was he wasn't one of the owners selected to meet with the players for good reason. (laughs) (laughs) But his quote was, "We can't have the inmates running the prison." Whew, lordy! I think that what obviously a quote like that has sent you know shockwaves. I mean that's. It's about as appalling as as it gets. And you've seen NFL players across the league, you know, react. I I thought the Richard Sherman, who is a very outspoken member of the Seattle Seahawks, said, you know, don't apologize for saying it. You know, now we know what you think. Like, you know, now we know. And McNair has a pop. But are we really surprised? No, we're not surprised. (laughs) No, I don't think I don't think it's a surprise. I think it's just like it's something when they will just say it. I mean, it's like you can't even pretend your way through this. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a surprise. It's like a removal of the mask. Yeah. And, and look, I think that you can still be shocked, even though if logically you aren't surprised, right? Like, you can be shocked and appalled. And it's it's just disgusting. I think that we're going to see a lot of the, the Houston Texans. I should say that McNair has apologized but also he said that the quote was taken, the quote was, he's, he's kind of, I mean, he's lying, but he's saying, you know, I was actually talking about the NFL and the owners, like, that's not what I meant. But look, Houston Texans, they considered walking out of practice on Friday. A few players actually did, including one of their star players. So I think that it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. These players are reeling. 
they're also continuing to find their voice and continuing to figure out the amount of power that they do have together uniformly and as like a collective bargaining unit. So it's going to be really inter interesting. And I just think these owners can't get out of their own way when it comes to this. I don't know where it goes from here. Amira, did you have something really quick to add? Yeah, by all reports, they had a players, the Houston Texans had a players only meeting last night and plan to protest in some way today that they've discussed either removing the Texan decal from their helmet, raising their fist during the anthem or kneeling together as players during the anthem. So we will see what occurs. Okay, well, it'll be interesting just in general to see what's going to happen with football moving forward. And like we talked about whether or not this is a cycle or if we're actually seeing a shift. Okay, time to move on. I believe this might be the first time on the show that we've actually discussed NASCAR racing. Lindsay, can you tell us why we're talking about it today? Yeah, look, I actually like NASCAR, <laughs> which I know is strange, but I, I, I got Bleach Report made me cover it a few years ago. And when I was covering it, I kind of got into it. I kind of liked it a lot. But Look, okay, so on Wednesday, Richard Petty Motorsports announced that Daryl Wallace Jr., who is nicknamed Bubba, and that's how I'm going to refer to him because that's literally how he likes to be called. So that Bubba will be the full-time driver of their number 43 car next season. And this is significant because Bubba, who is 24, will just be the second known black driver in series history to drive a full-time schedule, joining NASCAR Hall of Famer Wendell Scott so Bubba actually drove a few races last year in this top series, which is NASCAR's Monster Energy Cup series, and making him one of only eight black drivers in NASCAR history to ever drive in the top series. And he's only the second black driver in the last 30 years to start a race in NASCAR's top series. So these are all milestones that he reached this past year. Next year, he will drive full time, which is in itself a really huge deal. So look, besides the historic nature of this news, there are a couple of things I find really interesting to put this in context. First of all, we have the obvious, which is that NASCAR's culture is not known for being the most progressive. The Confederate flag is still prominent at tracks, even though it's been banned in any official capacity. You can still see it in the infields, on the, the shirts the fans are wearing. It's, it's a presence. Last year, also, NASCAR's CEO Brian France and four former and current drivers officially endorsed Donald Trump. This was early on in the primaries. So this is when there were still a lot of Republicans in the race for president. Richard Petty, who is now Bubba's boss, has been adamant speaking out against kneeling during the national anthem and, you know, has said things like there will be none of that in NASCAR. And look, you definitely have not seen any sort of protest of any kind in NASCAR. But on the other hand, this is yet another victory for NASCAR's Drive for Diversity program, which is a program that was founded in 2004. The program got off to a very rocky start, but it is a notable that Bubba came from this program. And there are two other full-time graduates of this program who were in NASCAR's top series, Daniel Suarez, who is a Mexican driver, and Kyle Larson, who is Japanese-American. So, you know, NASCAR did what you have to do. They decided they wanted to be more deliberate about diversity, right? That it wasn't just something that was going to happen naturally. They set up programs for it. And although there was a lot of mismanagement at the top, eventually it has made a tangible impact, which you have to give 
the sport some credit for. So there's there's kind of two these two different lenses to see this news through. And Jess, I'm just just take what what stands out to you. I mean, it's hard. Like I when I first saw the news, I was really surprised. I don't know a ton about NASCAR. I mean, for all of my southernness, this is not something that I totally understand. I have a trouble like watching the races because I just don't get what's happening. So I was surprised to see on both sides of it. I was surprised. I was surprised to see that there will be a full-time black racer in NASCAR, but also that it's been like decades since there was one, right? So I'm both like, I'm surprised to see that he's there because of racism, but then the very racism of the sport is the reason that it's been so long. So I don't know how to, you know, I'm at that moment where I'm like both feelings at once because I associate the Confederate flag with NASCAR. Like that's sort of like the overriding image for me of it. And I mean, Wallace, can you tell us a little bit, Lindsay? Cause I don't know a ton about this. Like has he's, has he spoken about this? Like his own role here? Like what it's like for him? He has briefly, I mean, he doesn't, he's in a tough position, right? Because he is in the sport and, but look, right. he, he has, you know, talked about how he still doesn't see many black black fans at NASCAR events. He said earlier in his career, he experienced outright, you know, racism that he would be called the N word and such. There have been a few high profile incidents. Look, NASCAR had him take over their like Instagram account for the BET awards a few years ago that he was invited to. And as you might imagine, that turned into racist (laughs) debacle, you know, in the comments. And you know, but at the same time, he's got a lot of really great friends in NASCAR. He's very beloved. And the interesting thing about NASCAR is that there are only 43 drivers on a weekend, week out basis in the top series. You know, this isn't a sport where anybody gets a lot of opportunity and it takes so much money to get your foot in the door. So your odds of making a NASCAR are almost, you know, steeper than making it in any other sport because these drivers' careers are 10, 20, 30 years long. And there aren't that many, you know, it's not like there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of top level rides. There's only a few. So it's it's a tough sport for anybody to break through in. And it's a tough sport, especially when you've got the perception. So I, listen, I give Bubba a lot of credit and I think he's handled himself really, really well. I do think there's probably a lot more that he wants to say about his experience that, you know, maybe we'll have to wait till till later to hear. He's still so young. Brenda? You know, while, while you're talking, Lynn's and you, you were bringing up Petty and these kinds of initiatives that are being done. It just, I don't want to be too optimistic and get too romantic or anything, but it made me think that it really is a matter of talent being able to force people to desegregate the sport in a sense. I don't know, but it gave me some kind of like hopeful moment where I was like, oh my God, maybe just the fact that he's actually really, really talented made it work this time. It doesn't mean it's going to be great for him. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, going to be a wonderful thing, but it does give me some pause. Amira? Yeah. And while he hasn't spoken about it as publicly as say his father has, his father actually has gone on record saying he believes that he would get more sponsorships because he's black. I think it's probably important to note that his father is a white man, but his mother also is, he comes from athletic pedigree and his mother was one of the first black women to run track at the University of Tennessee in the 80s. Oh, wow. I actually did on the wow. Okay. Huh. Shereen, you want to jump in here? 
I'm really interested by these. I follow the NASCAR diversity Twitter account and I find it really interesting. And I also, I don't know very much about the sport itself. And Brianna Daniels actually had been on Burn It All Down. We'd recognized her as a badass one of the women of the week. She was oh, the first right. black woman to be in a pit crew. And also I'd sort of been kind of crushing on Tia Norfleet, who is the daughter of like, I guess he's a legend, Bobby Norfleet, a driver, but she's the first black woman racer so i also think that racing is like totally badass and i think it's great because it's so it's a you know very masculine sport or you know those it feeds really heavily into those gender norms so i really like particularly women of color being in a space that is admittedly very very like white male so like i think i i kind of follow this and i find it really fascinating and i wonder i don't know is this diversity initiative like it's a program which is actually i know i don't want to toot the horn too quickly but it's a well a step ahead of a lot of other federations and organizations who are, they actually have a program in play to support people who want to come up and people who are in the margins so you know i'm not necessarily going to be on the side with all those confederate flags or whatever but you know that's just something to think about Lindsay, you want to wrap it up for us yeah, I, I want to quickly say that, you know, we haven't talked about gender, although the Drive for Diversity program does include, so it's for minorities and women, or both, obviously, women of color. But I think that, you know, Danica Patrick, we're going to devote a segment to her before before long. She Her career might be coming to an end, we're not sure. But, you know, today I want to just kind of stick with the race element. And I just wanted to end by talking a little bit about Wendell Scott, who remains the only African-American to ever win a race in NASCAR's top series. He did so back in 1963 at the Jacksonville 200. He was often booed by fans. He was intentionally wrecked by his competitors, and he was barred outright from competing in some tracks. But when he did get to victory lane at that Jacksonville 200, his win wasn't even acknowledged because the racetrack didn't want to hand him the trophy in front of everyone because it would have been such a scandal because the white trophy girl would have had to kiss him for NASCAR custom. So this is the history of the sport, and this is where we're coming from. And look, kudos to you, Bubba. We're glad to have you on the sport and wish you all the best. Up next, Shreen interviews Allison Gallagher about trans athlete Hannah Mouncey being denied entry into the Australian Football League's draft. Australia rules football is undoubtedly the most popular sport down under. But the AFL has recently come under fire for its treatment of a trans athlete, Hannah Mouncey, less than 24 hours before 27-year-old Mouncey was to be drafted by a team. She was ruled ineligible because she was, quote, too physically dominant, unquote, despite the fact that she falls well within the range of the International Olympic Committee guidelines. Mouncey is a trans woman and also considered a top 10 draft pick. We've seen this type of unjust policy after we followed the cases of South African long-distance runner Castor Semenya and Indian sprinter Duty Chand. The Court of Arbitration in Sport had overruled an initial decision by the International Association of Athletic Federations because it failed to prove that women with high levels of testosterone had a competitive edge. Furthermore, the timing of the AFL announcement was very unfortunate because it prevented Mouncey any chance to challenge the decision in a timely matter. Again, AFL did not use IOC rules regarding trans women or suggestions and recommendations, despite the fact that Mouncey falls well within these guidelines. To discuss this, I have Alison Gallagher, a Sydney-based writer and poet, and their work has appeared in places like Overland, Junkie, 
ID, and the Sydney Morning Herald, among others. Thank you so much for being on the show, Allison. Thank you for having me. First of all, you said in your piece, your your junkie piece, that you're admittedly not a huge sports fan. <laughs> but <laughs> I think that that being said, your piece was really, really powerful. And I was wondering, despite that, this speaks more to just pure sport itself. This speaks to human rights and trans rights. And I was wondering if you could actually give us a little bit of a rundown on the reaction in Australia when this news was released. I think the thing that maybe a lot of people found quite jarring was, as you said, how close to the cutoff date it was. I mean, it was only 24 hours before the drafting. So I I think a lot of people found that to be quite, quite like kind of a cruel thing because, yeah, like you say, it, it really didn't allow any space for Hannah to kind of like form any kind of you know, argument or challenge that decision in any meaningful way. Yeah, I think a lot of people were just kind of baffled by, I guess, the vagueness of the statement that the AFL released and how abstract, I guess, it was. It kind of talked about, you know, the unfair advantage that Hannah would supposedly have if she was allowed to compete but didn't really explain in any kind of real way what that would look like. And I think that was kind of, you know, a pretty strange and, you know, frustrating thing to experience, especially for, you know, trans people in this country. Yeah, definitely. It was my understanding that, because you said I, I read the statement, and it was incredibly vague, the AFL statement. And although they're arguing that they fall within the rights the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Act, there's actually a clause that allows for this type of discrimination. And I was, it just talks about the loopholes from within that federations try to, you know, implement their unjust policies. And I'm wondering, just a passage that you wrote in Junkie, and we're going to add that to the show notes for our listeners when when we're up. It says, The AFL and other sporting bodies that deny trans athletes access to the sporting arena can pretend like these decisions are based on fairness and physical science, but they're not. And actively choosing to exclude a trans woman from competition based on evidence that simply doesn't exist, the AFL commission has made a serious transphobic error in judgment. They've reified the structural transphobia that we faced in so many domains of public life. So how often do we see this? For those of our listeners that aren't necessarily familiar, are other sports federations in Australia actually more open? Like is netball better? Is cricket better? Is the AFL a federation that struggles with this? I mean, I think this is kind of the first like time that the AFL has really had to deal with this. And so the women's AFL league in Australia for, you know, people who don't know has only existed for, you know, a relatively short time. So it doesn't really have that history, I guess, of where it might have experienced this problem before. I guess the way the way that I sort of feel is that it's the it's probably the most kind of high profile case that's that's kind of involved, you know, a trans person in sport in Australia for a while. And so it's really disappointing that rather than kind of use it as an opportunity to create more inclusion within the game and kind of open it up for a more 
diverse group of people, the AFL have chosen to, you know, exclude a trans woman and, and in doing that basically gatekeep and, you know, sort of create barriers to access, which I think when you're a trans person who sort of experiences a lot of, you know, barriers to just accessing lots of aspects of, you know, public life in a way that's comfortable and safe, then it's pretty heartbreaking and pretty devastating to see that happen. The other things that I found quite mind-boggling was that Muncie is absolutely welcome in recreation leagues, but it's really with the semi-professional and professional this injustice is, is is thrust upon her, this like part of these systems of oppression that say no. And I'm oh, sort sure. of like, well, that doesn't make any sense, actually. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, sport absolutely. is sport. And I mean, she's, and her teammates love her. I've heard um, interviews with her coaches and, and, and they're very, you know, supportive of her yeah. and, and her decisions. And so it's just, it's something else. It doesn't strike me as, as, as sensible. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like no one, no one else is complaining. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not like, it kind of got framed as this thing of like, you know, it being an action that helped like level the playing field. But I mean, yeah, none of her teammates, none of her competitors, no one is really complaining. So it is really strange in that sense. And what I found really almost bizarre was that the actual, you know, height and weight measurements they that were being released and her being assessed, which I found was totally ridiculous in the first place, because yeah. they don't have the same comparisons in the men's leagues. Like there's players that are yeah, much taller. And, yeah. Yeah. And it was very weird. And the other thing that I found terribly frustrating was that there's no appeals process in this for, for Hannah. No, no, is there? Not really. No. Are groups mobilizing in Australia to support her beyond sport? Because like you said, this isn't an issue of like sports. It's not like only sports people are affected sure. by this. It's an entire yeah, community. Yeah. How is the support she's received in Australia? Like, what's that looking like? There was a protest in Melbourne recently that got quite a bit of coverage. Um, I think online as well. And social media people have been really quite supportive of her. I think it may be the case that a few of her teammates have sort of come out and given statements. Yeah, I, I think there's been kind of a a general sense that that there is something unfair about what's happened. Yeah, definitely. I was wondering, even within the trans community, there's some debate as to whether she should be closer to transition or a way yeah, to, yeah. in a way. And like, how does one navigate that when trying to understand and support Mouncy and her, you know, in navigating through this injustice? Like, how does how does that work on the outside? So you're sort of asking about, like, because there's a diverse range of opinions from within the trans community about this is that kind of what you're asking? I am. I'm just sort of asking how we can be better allies and we can support in this. Yeah, like- sure. Yeah. I mean, I think just like listening and kind of amplifying the voices of trans people. I mean, it's it's one thing for you know trans people to kind of discuss this and have kind of different opinions but i i kind of think it's it's the sort of thing that at the end of the day it's not really something that says people have 
much right to kind of dissect and like talk about in a really sort of like detached abstract way I mean at the end of the day it's like I said it's kind of just a a representation of some of the kind of like exclusion that you know trans people face in dozens and dozens and dozens of different ways and so I mean I think listening to especially the sort of trans sportswomen that have that have come out in the past couple of days and spoken about what's happened and kind of given their support to Hannah and I mean I think at the end of the day just having an having an open mind about this kind of stuff and you know I mean I I think at the end of the day I can I can understand why why is this person might feel might not really understand or might you know might see you know concerns I totally get it but I think the important thing is really just to read what trans people have said and read the you know the data that is that is available around this kind of stuff and kind of take a step back and you know absorb that Definitely. I read a statement by a Canadian cyclist, Kristen Worley, and it was really important because what she was saying was, and I'll quote here, inevitably, it is the athlete always that wears liability and the person that takes on the media and the organizing body and who know very little and unprepared to respond properly. And I've read a majority of the current media and 90% of what I read is not factual, which only further perpetuates harm to all parties involved, end quote. And Kristen was actually, for those that don't know, is a Canadian cyclist and she challenged the IOC with their unjust rules and she won. So she's actually working with sports federations around the world. And I think that's really important. And that speaks to what you're saying, Allison, about listening to what people are saying and how lived experience is crucial. And you mentioned that. And for me, that was really striking in your piece that you were saying that in the sports world, people are looking to to others other than trans folks, and it's their life experience. And that's just, it's it's so frustrating. So as we we move forward, do you know if Hannah is going to continue with AFL? If she's going, sorry, can it continue with football? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the impression that I get. Uh, her statement, yeah, certainly suggested that she wasn't going to kind of you know stop anytime soon, so... Yeah, she's incredibly positive, and that's powerful in itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A very, an extremely articulate and, I think, measured response given, I think, you know, if it had been me, I probably would have been a lot, wouldn't have been quite as eloquent in my response. Thank you so much for chatting with us, Alison. Where can our listeners find your work? So I'm online at alisongallagher.com or on Twitter at Alison G-A-L-L-A-G-H-R. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. Shireen, want to get us started this week? 
Yes, and I never thought I would be doing this, but I actually have to call this out because I thought it was really problematic. You all know how much I love Megan Rapinoe. You know I love Pino. I do have to say that this past week we saw FIFA hashtag the best awards being given out. And Dana Castellano, who did not win, but she is a 18-year-old player from Venezuela. She's incredible. She was, you know, she won the golden boot at the under 17 World Cup in Jordan last November. She's amazing. She was she was shortlisted. Now there was a lot of hullabaloo, like Brenda talked about this in previous episodes. We talked about this surrounding the shortlist. Now, my problem is is that Megan Rapino was talking about, she was criticizing the article, it was her criticizing FIFA in general and saying FIFA exec is old, stale, and male. And I totally agree with her on this. I mean, she also said FIFA doesn't care about women's football. Now, in the BBC article, it goes on to say that the award doesn't just hold a lot of weight when you've got someone on the list I've never heard of. And this is Rapino. Okay, she kind of lost me there. I get it, that she's not happy with FIFA. But this ain't a younger player. A younger player, particularly from like the global south, is not something I'm okay with. And I don't think it's a way to decimate toxic patriarchy in FIFA. I don't think this is a way to do it. I think there's better ways to actually say it. It was also completely dismissive of Castellano herself, who at the same time that this article is coming out, is taking photos with Carly Lloyd, who was another finalist, and they're giving each other a lot of support on Twitter. So I think it was short-sighted and it was unfair by Pino. So Pino, I'm sorry. I'm upset by that. Burn. 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 All right, Brenda, what put flames on the side of your face this week? I'm just going to piggyback on that. That very same event, the FIFA glitzy gala where Cristiano Ronaldo won his fifth best player of the year award to tie Messi. So, like, I hate it already. (laughs) But what I really hate... (laughs) Gross. What I really hate, super hate, is that it turns out that the bill, the tab for that, was $4.5 million. You have a party. Right? You had a party in London. Not very many people even went. $4.5 million. And then that same time, the budget came out. And FIFA's total development money to help 209 national federations develop women's football was $5.1 million. Burn it, burn it to the ground in London, in Zurich, and wherever they oh. operate with their gross <laughs> tentacles. Oh, Lindsay, what's on your burn pile this week? Yeah, I'm going to take a little bit of a different turn here. The College of the Ozarks. It's a unique private Christian liberal arts college in Point Lookout, Missouri. It only has about 1,500 students. It proudly calls itself Hard Work U. On Monday, the college announced it was requiring every freshman to enroll in a patriotic education and fitness program. This class is is going to teach students about modern military customs, American politics, flag protocols and procedures. There's also map reading, navigation, <laughs> rope knotting, and rifle marksmanship. I'm legit shuddering. <laughs> I'm going to read you. I am never going there. I'm never going there. <laughs> I'm There's more to burn. There's more to burn. The class seems to be a direct response to athletes across the country taking a knee, obviously. This is a Kaepernick uh, response to Kaepernick. In September, the College of the wow. Ozarks 
which I might say is a Christian college that was named the most unfriendly school for LGBT students by the Princeton Review. So this school announced a no pledge, no play initiative in September, which not only requires Ozarks athletes to stand at attention during the Star Spangled Banner, it requires their opponents to stand at attention as well. College of the Ozarks president, Jerry Davis, his quotes about this are, quote, we should be more intentional about patriotic education. And from our point of view, that needs to occur from kindergarten all the way through college. Patriotic education is not inherited. It must be taught. It must be modeled and emphasized. It is the United States of America, Davis said, not the diversified states of America. Oh, <laughs> I just burn. <laughs> Burn, burn that Confederate flag. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Amira, what got you incensed this week? Yeah, this week I was really irritated to hear that junior Emily Nash in Massachusetts, who plays golf and has been playing with the boys' team since eighth grade, won a golf tournament at Blissful Meadows by four strokes and yet was not given the trophy or the chance to advance for state. Why? Well, I will tell you, because Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association, that's the MIAA, their rules state that, I quote, girls playing on a fall boys team cannot be entered into the boys fall individual tournament. They can only play in the boys team tournament. And if they qualify, they can play in the spring for the girls state championships, if so desired. So this means that her stroke counts for the team competition. And if the team was to advance, which they didn't, she could compete with them. But individually, and as individuals, she is not allowed to advance the states or get the damn trophy that she <laughs> earned. And before you ask as the boys, this is something that is getting more and more attention in central Massachusetts. And her runner-up tried to hand her the trophy, which she said no. And it's seems like it's absolutely time for MIA to revisit this rule. If she can play, then let her play. And if she wins, give her the damn trophy. I'm burning it down. Burn. Give her the Burn. damn trophy. Burn. 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 Burn the Torch damn that. trophy. Melt that trophy. Whew. All right. I'm going to finish this out. So from the Alaska Dispatch News this week, quote, Iditarod race officials announced Monday that four-time Iditarod champion Dallas Seavey was the musher whose dogs tested positive for a prohibited opioid painkiller in the 2017 race. <laughs> Stevie, it's from, I know, right? I've been like, I've been like thinking about this all week. Okay. Stevie is from Iditaroid royalty. He came in second in the latest iteration of the race back in March of 2017. He lost to his dad, Mitch Stevie, who won his third Iditarod this year. So the Iditarod, the famed trail sled dog race, has been testing winning sled team's dogs since 1994. But this is the first time dogs have tested positive in those two plus decades. The substance they tested positive for is the opioid pain reliever called tramadol. According to the New York Times, quote, CV denied that he had administered the drug and said that doing so would have been irrational since he was aware of the testing. He said that tramadol, in his opinion, would not give him a competitive advantage, according to the statement. But in his video statement, CV went further, calling the proceedings a cancer on the sport and saying he believes the positive test was the result of a malicious attack from either another musher or from one of the protest groups that wants to harm the Iditarod. It's a pretty confusing story overall because it revolves around vague rules and punishments and arguments about how much information about the doping should be public. But no matter what, some dogs were pumped with opioids. <laughs> 
either a sabotage or to gain an advantage in a sledding race. And on behalf of those dogs, I want to burn that. Like, don't dope the dogs. Burn. After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. All right, here we go. So this week, our Badass Honorable Mentions go out to all the participants this week in the Women's Tennis Association year-end finals in Singapore. To Stephanie Taylor, captain of the West Indies women cricket team, who is being honored with the naming of the Stephanie Taylor Oval at the Eltham High School in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To Amina Mohammed, a student at Dakota Collegiate in Winnipeg, Manitoba, who worked with the school athletic department to create a sports hijab. The school ended up buying one from a company based in Minneapolis, but the school now is the second in Canada to have hijabs as part of the sports uniforms in case the athletes want them. To Netherlands and Barcelona attacker Leaky Martins, who has been named the best FIFA women's player for 2017. To the U.S. women's hockey team who played Canada last week in Boston in the opener of their seven-game pre-Olympics tour called the Time Is Now Tour. Canada won 5-1. to one. Yay! Yay! For them. <laughs> <laughs> but the game was played before a sold-out crowd, which comes on the heels of the U.S. women's team's very public fight for pay equity and more resources on the women's side of the sport, a fight that they won. To Decatur High School senior Autumn Finney and her ridiculous leaping save from the back of the volleyball court, if you have not seen this video yet, you are behind me by roughly 8,000 viewings. <laughs> We're going to link to this in the show notes. To Phaedra Knight, who was inducted into the Rugby Hall of Fame and was the only female inductee this year. Okay, and now, Amira, please tell us about this week's Badass Woman. Yes, it's my pleasure to give Badass Woman of the Week to Dr. Carla Williams, who was just named Athletic Director at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. This makes her the first African-American woman to reach this level of Athletic Director at any of the 64 schools that make up the Power Five Conference. And it also just makes her the fifth woman Athletic Director overall at this level. So she is definitely wow. a barrier breaker. She comes from athletic background. She was an all-SEC guard at the University of Georgia in the 80s. And she has many, many years in athletic administration at Florida State, at Vanderbilt, and most recently 13 years at the University of Georgia. So I am super excited for this position and it is my pleasure to give her Badass Woman of the Week. And to round out this episode, let's talk about what's good in our worlds this week. Lindsay, what's good with you? <laughs> I had a really hard time again this week. I think I might be in a rut. I went to the University of Richmond yesterday. My friend went to Stony Brook and likes to follow all the Stony Brook games around. So I traveled with him to watch that football game. And all around campus, there were these signs on the University of Richmond that said, my costume is not my consent. And these signs had a variety of races and body types. There was even one for a male. And it just made me really happy. Like this wasn't stuff I would, I mean, obviously I'm sad that these signs had to exist, but this wasn't something that was really on my radar, definitely not on my college's radar when I was in school 10 years ago. And I'm just really glad that this exists. It feels like an increased level of awareness and inclusivity. So that made me really happy. I know that's a weird one, but there you go. No, that's a good one. Shireen, what's good with you? I'm excited about eating chips. I take mama tax for my children in their hall, so I will be collecting on that soon. Also, I'm really excited by these really beautiful photos by 
the Seed Project organization, which is an organization that helps elevate the game of basketball in Africa with young athletes there. And the pictures are gorgeous. I've been obsessing over the women in Senegal. And also I'm really excited by Amira joining us. Like that's giving me life too. Oh, yes. Amira, tell us what's good with you. Yes, I'm really excited because I'm heading to Houston this week for a conference celebrating the 50th anniversary of the National Women's Conference in 1977. Oh, nice. But I'm also just happy because it gets I get to go home to the Gulf South and see my family, and it's the first time I'm seeing them since Harvey hit. Oh, wow. Okay. Brenda, how about you? I'm going to the desert. I'm going to the north of Chile, and I'm going to give a talk to physical education teachers and professors in Iquique, Chile. And I'm really excited to get their feedback. They all are kind of on this big continental project to try to, you know, make the practice of physical education more reflective in terms of gender equity. And then I'm going to go tour a ghost town. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I took a day, yeah, to like tour a ghost town that used to be a big you know, mining center. So I'm pretty psyched about it. That sounds amazing. I feel like we're never going to see you again. Sorry. I know. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I feel like we're never going to see you again. Well, okay, whatever. I'm getting my That's desert terrifying. on. I'm just going to walk into the <laughs> desert and never come back. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. Um, oh, so my thing that's good is Stranger Things, which season two came out on Friday. My husband's obsessed with the show. He built this really cool Halloween decoration from if you've seen season one, Winona Ryder's character writes these letters up on the wall and her son, who's in what's called the Upside Down, communicates with her by lighting up these lights, Christmas lights above each letter to talk to her. And my husband recreated that. We have that board at home and he can program whatever message into it. And so we've been watching season two in my house. It's wonderful. And it is the perfect lead into Halloween this week, which should be lots of fun. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And now for some asks. If you enjoyed this week's show, please share this episode with family, friends, work colleagues, neighbors, people at the dog park who you talk sports with, whomever you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. Finally, please take some time to check out our GoFundMe page and consider making a small donation. We really want to improve this podcast and make it a sustainable endeavor. We're really grateful to everyone who has contributed so far. That's it for Burn It All Down. For Amira Rose Davis, Shereen Ahmed, Brenda Elsie, and Lindsay Gibbs, I'm Jessica Luther. Until next week. Hey!